I hope you'll open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we begin a series of sermons from 1 Thessalonians. We're still uh, having services to last about 45 or 50 minutes. And beginning next Sunday, we are reversing the times of the outside and the inside service. Uh, The outside service will start at 9 o'clock, and then this service will be back to the old time of 11.15, and we'll extend the services back close to an hour. But today, still about 50 minutes, okay? Okay. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So ends the reading of God's holy word. I was reading an article called The Funniest Town Names in All 50 States, and it was pretty humorous about the various towns around the country that have very humorous names or names with a lot of personality. Names from the state of Alabama like Screamer, Alabama, to the town of Rough and Ready, California, or you've seen Two Egg, Florida. Uh, We lived in Mississippi for school and we would pass the signs for Hot Coffee, Mississippi, and Cold Water, Mississippi, and then there's Smack Over, Arkansas, but What's funny is how some of these names were arrived at. For example, if you've ever been through central North Carolina and seen the town of Why Not? Why Not, North Carolina? Well, the story goes that around 1860, the residents of this general area had no name uh, for this area, and so the United States Post Office planned to put down roots there, and they had to come up with a name, and so the people that lived there convened to decide on a name and a debate ensued and it went on and on and on and some would say why not name it this and others said why not name it that and the discussion dragged on so long that finally one frustrated citizen interrupted and said why not name the town why not and let's go home so they did that's why not North Carolina so who names the city Thessalonica what's up with that Thessalonica well a king did His name was Cassander. He was king in Macedonia, and around 321 B.C., he refounded this city, and he named it for his wife, who was the stepsister of Alexander the Great. That's how we get that name. Thessalonica was a booming city. It was only a GNC, and it also was a place where a major Roman road, the Ignatian Way, passed right through it, and it connected many major cities, so... Because of being a transportation hub, it became a center of commerce and wealth and influence. And into that city walked the Apostle Paul with Silas and Timothy in the summer of the year 50 A.D. And you can read precisely what happened in the opening verses of Acts chapter 17. It tells us what happened when Paul came there. But to summarize it, As was their custom when they entered a city for the purpose of evangelism, they went to the local synagogue. And for three consecutive Sabbaths, 
Now, Paul attempted to convince the congregation there from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah was born, was bound to suffer and arise again from the dead and that Jesus was that Messiah. And several people came to faith in Christ. Several believed, including a large number of Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles. But as was typical and still today, wherever there's reception of the gospel, there grows opposition to the gospel. And so some of the local authorities um, led Paul to leave the synagogue. Well, he wasn't ready to leave Thessalonica because there was fruit and he wanted to establish a church. So he looked for another place to gather with people and a man named Jason, a citizen, allowed him to come into his house and so Paul began to teach people there in the house of Jason but the civil magistrates received information that Paul and his companions were stirring up trouble that they were proclaiming uh, another king who rivaled the emperor and so Jason Paul's host and some of his friends uh, helped Paul and Silas and Timothy to leave by night. You ought to read the opening, I think it's nine verses of Acts chapter 17 that describe that. So as a result of that, just a few weeks of ministry, maybe two or three months, max we assume, uh, a church is established with these new believers in this city of Thessalonica. And, but Paul had had to leave. Now he's in Corinth. And they are concerned. Time has passed and He's concerned. How are they doing? How's that young church doing? Are they growing? Are they making progress? So he sends Timothy back to check on them. And Timothy goes back and he hears some very encouraging things. And then he returns to Paul, tells him what's going on back in Thessalonica. And as a result of that, Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And he's encouraged by what's happening there. He's overjoyed with Timothy's good news. So we begin with the text, just a typical greeting in those times. In our day, letters or emails, you begin with dear so-and-so or hey so-and-so. Uh, but in those days, it was common to begin with identifying who was writing. And that's what Paul does. He uses that greeting. And he introduces himself and he introduces his two co-workers who also have input on this letter. First, there's Paul. Uh, originally named Saul, the head of the missionary team, the key writer of the letter, just a little bit remind you of what you already know about Paul, but he's first mentioned in Scripture as watching over the coats of those who were stoning the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Now because it's easy when you're reading through the Bible and you go, oh, they stoned this person, to forget about how gory and gruesome that would have been to watch a person being put to death and commending it. You know that stoning is still practiced in some countries in the Middle East and in Africa and Nigeria. Uh, they'll bury a person up to their waist and then stone them to death. Uh, in certain places, you could not use large stones that might kill a person quickly, and you couldn't use real small ones that wouldn't cause enough damage. And so it would be a long, slow, protracted death through blunt trauma. And that's what happened with our Christian brother, Stephen. And Paul was there saying, yeah, this is the right thing to do, as he watched over the coats of those who were doing that. He approved of it. Paul was a, of the tribe of Gen Benjamin, a, a Jew uh, of that tribe. He was raised a strict Pharisee. He received the greatest education you could get in that day. He was tutored by 
the well-known instructor named Gamaliel. And Paul was a Roman, well, Saul at this time was a Roman citizen. And that helped him out, those privileges, on a number of occasions. So after Stephen dies, Saul goes on a, a campaign uh, to wipe out Christianity. Acts chapter 8 tells us he was going everywhere to devastate the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into jail. He was a zealot. But God had other plans for this, this man of great zeal. He reveals himself to Saul on the road to Damascus. And he tells him that Jesus truly was the Messiah. And so that zeal that had been so anti the church now is redirected to be uh, a proclaimer of truth to those who don't know Christ. And in Acts 9, God tells of his chosen mission for Saul. Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. So there's the first writer. Secondly is Silas, also called Silvanus, just quickly. He was a prophet. He was a proclaimer of truth, and he was held in high esteem with the church in Jerusalem. And Silas accompanied Paul on, on the second of three missionary journeys, and he helped him establish his church in Thessalonica. He's mentioned both in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians. Timothy. Timothy, the third one was a young Christian who joined Paul and Silas during that second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas had visited in Timothy's hometown of Lystra in their missionary work, and they had met Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, who had come to faith in Christ. And when Paul and Silas passed through Lystra again on the second missionary journey around the Mediterranean, Paul invited Timothy to join them. He saw something, obviously, in Timothy that um, that induced him, and that would not have come lightly, to say, go with us. And so Timothy traveled throughout the Roman Empire with Paul, and he preached also. He, he preached as well as served as Paul's assistant. <coughs> so they, they served together, the three of them. Here's a few observations, just rather briefly, just from this before we look at the text. Whenever possible, Paul always ministered with a team. Rarely was he alone, and, and typically it was just because it worked out that way, not because he chose it. And that's always wise, then and now. Christ sent out his disciples to minister in pairs. You know, if, if you are a, a student, let's say you're a high school student or a college student, and you want to start some sort of ministry in your, in your dormitory or, or on a team, um, one of the wisest things you can do is try to develop a small team to carry that out with at least one or two other people to pray together. Why? But you need various gifts and abilities. You need encouragement when you're discouraged. And if the missionary Paul needed teams, so do we. Secondly, we see how the churches multiply, and it's very simple. It's hard, but it's simple. Now, how the Great Commission is fulfilled. Even in his greeting, Paul tells us the gospel had created this church, the good news about Christ. So the good news goes forth, a church is formed, then the church proclaims the good news. Then another church is formed, and then that church proclaims the good news. So it's a multiplying effect, a domino effect, you might say. And we need that today. You know why? Because statistically speaking, the evangelism personal evangelism in American churches today, that is of, of Christians, church members actually 
presenting the gospel to other people is half what it was 10 years ago. You just don't hear about it. Now, that's a general statement. I I don't know about you personally, but uh, you think about when's the last time you heard someone say, oh, let me tell you about a friend I got to talk to, and they came to faith in Christ. For whatever reason, we just need to recognize the situation. We could speculate as to why. Maybe lack of training, maybe fear, maybe the culture, maybe all these things. Um, but it, 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 we need to be reminded, this is the normal way the Christian faith grows. Third observation, this is an encouraging letter. Some of the letters in the New Testament were written to deal with problems or to confront problems like the book of Galatians. And sometimes Paul immediately jumps into, hey, let me tell you where you're wrong and you need to straighten this out. There's none of that in Thessalonians. It is very encouraging to these young believers who were growing and ministering where God had placed them. So in the text, we see that they're writing in verse 1 to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for church originally is the word assembly. Now, there were secular assemblies, there were religious assemblies. What makes this distinct is that this is the assembly, the assembling together of those who are in, an unusual term here, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that this gathering of people who are living in or rooted, they are rooted in, they are drawing their life from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. So he's saying that they, the Thessalonians, and we, the First Presbyterian Church, are living in two worlds. We have two habitats. We have this life and the world to come. We are in Christ and we are in Macon, Georgia. Or as Augustine said, we are in the city of man and the city of God at the same time. We're living in two places. And I believe that Paul emphasized this to them at the very beginning so that as they went through trials, they'd know their security was in God. Notice the way Paul combines in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts these two together, identifying the deity of Jesus And so to this church, he sends his greetings. Grace to you and peace. It's a combination of the Jewish form of greeting, shalom, peace, and the word rejoice, a Greek term, which he Christianizes as grace. So it's like the old, shalom, and the new. The old and the new combined together in that greeting. Secondly, we see in verses 2 to 3, that the church is a community which is distinguished by faith, hope, and love. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells him that he and Silas and Timothy continually pray for them, and in their prayers they thank God for them as they remember, as they remember them. Church planting was not just a project. They weren't sending a report back to the church in Jerusalem saying, hey, there were X number of converts in the city of Thessalonica. It was relational. It was relational. And this was typical of the Apostle Paul. They're praying for them by name. They are remembering faces and needs and and conversations. Do you know when you come to the last chapter of Romans, 
where Paul gives a greeting at the end of that letter, there are more than 25 people mentioned by name. He was personally involved. It was relational. I've been away for the past couple of Sundays. Last Sunday, I was watching a number of churches streaming worship services uh, online. And I, uh, and for those of you that are doing the same, I'm grateful, but it's not the same as corporate worship. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that our worship is a shadow of the worship in heaven. I guess online worship is a shadow of the shadow of the shadow of the shadow. It's a substitute, but it is a poor substitute, and here's why. I think I know the reason why. I think I experienced it. This was never intended to be watched. It's to be participated in. The very name church, assembling together. Now, there are reasons, and we're grateful for technology, and when we're providentially hindered, and I'm glad that we have this technology for those that can't be here, or, and, and I, re, I respect that. But to think that, that we can involve ourselves through watching something that was never intended to be a spectator kind of thing, it, it will not work. It doesn't meet the same needs. Uh, as grateful as we are for, for that. I'm glad you're with us, if, if you are. But it, that's what he's saying there is that this is assembling of them uh, together is, is what is key. And that, so they remember them. It was relational. Church is relationships. It's relationships. Do you know another trend today and has been going on for a while that, that mega churches, which is attendance of 2,000 people or more, plateaued probably at least 10 years ago in the U.S. and is being replaced by neighborhood churches. Now, nationally, this is a large church. I mean, the, the typical, not typical, but uh, uh, and what we call a medium-sized church is about 200 people where you can know each other. That's what's replacing that. That is the attraction, especially with younger people, that it's relationships rather than a program. Well, what did they remember about them? Three things. Faith, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. Do those three sound familiar? Where do we read about those? 1 Corinthians 13, but it hadn't been written yet. We think this was Paul's first letter. This was the first letter he wrote. But we'll see that theme come back and back, and he develops it more later when he writes 1 Corinthians. So just briefly, very briefly, note quickly these things about these three qualities. Um, they are productive. They're productive qualities. They aren't just uh, concepts to think about. Uh, true faith leads to good works. Then true love for people results in working for their welfare. And true hope looks to the coming of Christ. I want to end by offering hope. By offering hope. Hope is in short supply today. If you watch television, national news coverage, when was the last time you heard a report and said, boy, I really feel good. I've got a lot of hope right now. Do you see this life as a hopeless end or as endless hope? The opposite of hope is despair. And it can take a toll on a person. 
You know, there was a journal of the American Heart Association in 1997 that found that people with high levels of despair had a 20% higher rate of narrowing of the arteries than did those who don't live with despair. You know what that means? You know what that translates into? That, that having a hopeless attitude is the same as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So for your benefit, your personal benefit and mine, we need hope. God calls us to hope for our own good. Do you have this kind of hope? Would others describe you, those who know you well, would they describe you as a person of hope? Not a person who never experiences sorrow or disappointment, but do you possess a hope that makes it possible for you to endure hardship? Even persecution because of your faith, because, because you know that God sees all and one day he will make it right. If your answer, if I say, do you have hope? If your answer is, well, I had hope when I was younger, or I had hope before I lost all my money, or I had hope when I felt better and I wasn't sick all the time, or I had hope before he died, you don't have this hope because those things are temporary. This is a different type of hope. And you can have it. It's offered. A hope that gives you the certainty that Christ will return one day. It gives you the certainty that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It gives you the certainty that the righteous will never be forsaken and begging bread. It gives you the certainty that all the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. It gives you that certainty. There have been various segments of our culture that have suffered more than others during this time, the past year, even in our own congregation. If, if it's some of us, if you're only inconvenienced, if you've only been inconvenienced, then maybe, and you've not had someone in a nursing home or in a nursing home yourself or in some kind of medical facility or experienced the death of somebody you love that you didn't get to spend time with at the end. Terrible thing. Almost tragic what's happened to families at the end of life with my own sister. Nobody got to go talk to her. So the... Um, there have been different segments, but one segment of the culture that's been decimated is those with disabled. Those that have disabled family members, like my own and number in our church. And I've read about and watched, and I'm in these Facebook groups, of people with disabled children, adult children, and, and here is the common thread that we all live with. I'm just kind of letting you in on something that maybe you never think about, okay? And that is, who is going to take care of this young person or old person when I'm dead? And it eats at you, and it eats at you, and it eats at you day after day after day. Something I never thought about. I didn't grow up around anything like this. And I go on this Facebook thing with, uh, in Georgia, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But the domino effect of jobs have been having to be people having to quit to take care of people at home because facilities closed. Well, about a week ago, this really, really got a hold of me. And I was, I was in despair. 
about something that hadn't even happened yet, but just thinking, there is no solution. There is no solution. And I had to come to grips with this. And, I, and I, God didn't speak to me, not, not audibly. And I, I don't mean to sound trite, but thinking about the Psalms like we used earlier today, it's like, Chip, do you believe me? Am I big enough to take care of this because it is out of your control? And he is. He is. That's the kind of hope. That's the kind of hope that Christ produces. We can't produce that on our own. Only Christ. And he was producing it in these very young Christians, maybe who'd been believers less than a year. And Paul saw it. I'm out of time. I'm going to just slam the brakes on the car, whiplash everybody, and let's, let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that through Christ we can know and we can live out faith and love and hope. And for those in despair today, perhaps, unspoken to anyone else, may our hope be in Christ beyond this life. May we see that this life is a preface. Even if we live 80, 90, or 100 years, it is a preface of what's to come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.